0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul continues to use the ideas of glory and light and ministry and veiling mainly to encourage his readers. And this section also looks like what he preached to himself when he needed encouragement. Just looking at the first verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is a good indicator of this encouragement theme. first verse says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. The title that appears most often in various Bibles for these first six verses is The Light of the Gospel, and that's right on target. If you are able, would you please stand as I read the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word but by the open statement of the truth we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled only to those who are perishing in their case has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe be seated. Well, we get another picture of Paul's ministry here in the first two verses. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open, open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And we know by the first word Paul uses here, that good old therefore word, that this passage is tied to the chapter before it. Paul explained in chapter 3 that the gospel of Christ, the new covenant, is powerful. Transforming those who believe and receive it from the inside out. So the increasingly they increasingly reflect the image of Christ in their character as they look at and fix their eyes upon the Lord in their fellowship with him." In other words, the Holy Spirit is on a mission, and he will complete it. And this is exactly why Paul and his helpers do not lose heart in ministering to the Corinthians. And you have to admit, after going through 1 Corinthians Corinthians, and then jumping right into this letter, the follow-up letter, we have to be asking ourselves, how hard was this? What were these people doing? How many of them were faithful? Because several problems just stuck out like a sore thumb. They also see and know, Paul and his helpers, that God is in the process of changing or transforming the character and conduct of those people he and his helpers are ministering too. So they will not lose heart. Any Christian who works with, ministers to, or serves other believers faces this issue on at least two different levels. First, they have to deal with their own problems in a way that preaches this truth to themselves. And second... They also have to deal with many issues and problems that they themselves may have never had to face. That can seem impossibly daunting if they can't preach this truth to themselves first. So this truth about understanding how the Holy Spirit works in each believer to conform them more and more to the image of Christ has to be constantly believed and applied personally, and it has to be known and understood and applied in a way that is not so focused on yourself, say, that you can't even see or much less understand what other people are going through. Another interesting and important side note here, there is, as with many other lessons in life, a combination of learning this yourself before you strike out in ministry, in other words, growing in spiritual maturity, along with the knowledge that you'll learn a lot of this by being willing to minister to others in the first place, so you just strike out and try it anyway, which is kind of an idea of spiritual obedience. And this is where mature believers in the church can really help in discernment. But how many people do you know maybe yourself, who are stuck at one of those things and you never get to the other one. In other words, you're trying to be the most spiritual, theologically apt person in the whole world and you never get out to minister to anybody. That's just wrong. Or you come to know Christ and you hardly know him at all and you just strike out and won't listen to anybody else because you think you've got all the answers to start off with. We know that those, both of those can cause problems. So we need to see these addressed together. And that's part of the reason we're in this church, is to help each other be, there's a balanced word again. And next, look how Paul and his companions describe their ministry, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul sees what they're doing, obviously, as a great privilege given to them by the mercy of God. Listen to what Paul says about his calling in another letter, his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8. There he writes, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of, of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? If you ever want to check your attitude, you just read some of these things Paul says about his own ministry and why he's doing it. Now, there's a very important point here. Salvation, of course, is the most important gift of grace, but it's not the only one. Service is too. Why? So there can be no pride of status in any position in which God places us. A man named Diotrephes provides a negative example in 3 John, verse 9. There's only one chapter there. And he's described like this. He likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority, talking about the Apostle John and where the church met, who obviously was an elder, Gaius. In other words, he thought that his status was first in his church. And that status was only reserved for Christ as the head of every church. In verse 2, Paul gives a series of three related, we could call them disclaimers, which really help us understand the ugly and hurtful nature of the criticisms being leveled at him from some people in that body. And We read there, but we have, first, renounced, disgraceful, underhanded ways, And second, we refuse to practice cunning. And third, or to tamper with God's word. Now, this first disclaimer, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. If I could see y'all's faces better, I could probably see some people going, what, my translation doesn't say that. Almost every translation phrases this different. But what that does for us is that when we read them all, we get a really clear picture of exactly what this is. Because this is hard to just put in one word or so. Um, so here's some of them. In the New American Standard you guys are reading, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. In the Christian Standard Bible, we have, we have renounced secret and shameful things. NIV says we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We've renounced the hidden things of shame, New King James. But we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, King James. We don't do shameful things that must be kept secret. That's one of the new English, more paraphrased versions that really nails everything pretty well. Paul is strongly renouncing what? This charge must have come against him and his companions of hiding and keeping secret any disgraceful, ugly, and shameful motives and behaviors. And if you can remember back that far, we know that in Paul's uh, promise to come to them as soon as possible, this was exactly the charge that they charged him with. He wasn't telling them the truth. When he was actually going to be there, he said he was going to be there, but he didn't show up. And he had to spend this whole long passage, remember, explaining what had happened. And he did so. Now, the second disclaimer is similar and related. It says, we refuse to practice cunning. You know, you don't hear that word very much anymore. But this also is translated not walking in craftiness or not acting deceitfully and or we do not use deception. So here, we see that Paul was being accused of intentionally deceiving the Corinthian church. And he's obviously denying this very strongly. The third disclaimer is we refuse to tamper with God's word, which is also translated as adulterating the word of God. Actually, tampering with is the definition of adulterating. Okay? Or distorting the word of God. So we see the the primacy of God's word being messed with in all these charges. The word translated tamper with comes from the, the practice of diluting wine with water. So that's a very good description. Paul also strongly denies any deluding of, twisting of, perverting of God's word. So the accusations against Paul claim Paul claimed that his preaching falsifies God's revealed word and insinuates that he has watered down, follow this now, the demands of the law. Now, who would that be coming from? The Judaizers who followed him all around the Mediterranean when he was founding these churches. That was their main charge. Especially, see, in respect even to the Gentile Christians, this was a constant accusation of Paul's ministry everywhere as he worked hard to make the New Covenant clear. You know, a lot of times we just think Paul's charging around. He never even thinks twice about it. He's bold. He never hurts. Well, we've seen in these two Corinthian letters, that's just not so. That's just not so. He constantly had to deal. We would probably call it here in the panhandle in West Texas, burn your saddle. I mean, constantly. And these charges against him came mainly, as I said, from the Judaizers who were just following him around with accusations, all sorts of negative things about him and his character as well. So the sticking point, what was what Paul had preached, was what got everybody so worked up. And what was that? What did they have to preach from? They had the Old Testament scriptures. Paul preached the Old Testament scriptures, that's what they had, and he preached those Old Testament scriptures as being fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Because he so adamantly preached openly and honestly to anyone who wanted to hear, he can end this verse, verse 2, by saying, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Another way to say that is by setting forth the truth plainly, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience by in the sight of God. And one thing we must hear and that we've got to get in these first two verses is how important it is that the preacher, the messenger, the teacher must be absolutely straight with their hearers. No false news, no tricky statements, no buzzwords that may have double entendres so much that the gospel is just completely obliterated. The plain truth must be communicated not some new version that leaves out what we think might not go over well. You know, a lot of conferences in the past couple of decades have been called um, and drawn people who are trying to figure out new, improved, relevant ways to share the gospel. And some of them have gotten so off track you can't even recognize the gospel. Experiences in our day, ironically, are listened to. If you've got an experience, the mantra is, well, your experience is your truth, and I'll tell you mine afterwards. But if you get a chance to share your experience with Christ, people will listen most of the time. And we may be surprised to see our testimonies listened to. But claims to absolute authority and truth are violently rejected, especially one that says salvation through Christ is God's only way. And then we hear all the verbiage that's driving us all crazy in our day, right now especially. But does that mean you don't share it plainly? honestly, humbly, looking people in the eye? It means you you don't feel anything when they reject it? No. But it means we have to know the truth and stand on it so strongly in his grace and mercy that we share that fact. Otherwise, people are going to try to use the truth they agree with, which might not be much, in order to make themselves feel good or make themselves feel like I am going on to a better place or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Plainly communicating this will always be a must and it's not negotiable. And the preacher, the messenger, the teacher's private life should match the message of grace. Paul is not talking about perfection, but he is pointing to reflecting Christ in that person's life. This is why he provides these three disclaimers to the charges against him and his message. A straight, honest gospel message, along with a Christ-centered life, allows Paul to imply that his opponents practice the very things that they've been accusing him of. His three disclaimers are actually used by Paul as sort of a double-edged sword. And then Paul deals with the negative responses to his gospel message in verses 3 and 4. The way verse 3 begins, and even if our gospel is veiled, indicates that this too was a charge leveled against Paul that Paul's gospel message was ineffective and veiled. Many in Corinth refused to accept this gospel and so for them, it remained veiled. What were they holding on to? That they could follow the law and get there, in some version. And the Jews are persuasive, are persuasive which means the Gentile, the Greeks who came to know Christ We're also confronted with this as brand-new believers. and you can picture that, can't we? We can can picture that. Somebody becomes a Christian in our church, and immediately the people who are just voracious in trying to get people to be circumcised, and that's the only way to do it, and you're going against the Old Testament, you can just hear those arguments, can't you, in your head? And it'd be really hard to go, well, well, okay. I don't get that, but whatever. And then it gets worse and worse and worse. Notice that Paul says in verse 3, the second part, that the gospel is veiled through those who are perishing. Now this is really, really interesting. The people who reject the gospel are those who are perishing. That's in verse 4. And it says that is unbelievers. They've heard the gospel but refuse to obey Christ. And when Paul uses perishing in his letters, it refers to people who knowingly reject the gospel and by their own choice follow the way that leads to eternal death. So in verse 4, we read, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Paul calls Satan the God of this world, not to put the devil on an equal level with God Almighty. This is no the force. This is no yin-yang or any other philosophical idea that tries to say there's this balance of good and evil in our universe. There is not. That's not what he's saying. He is trying to show that Satan's rebellion against God has strongly influenced the world's focus and mindset, including its ideals and opinions and goals and hopes and views. And this is what is disturbing all of us now. When almost everybody in this room grew up, there was at least a voice being considered and recognized as being the voice of the Word of God along with all the other messes. And that is fastly going out of fashion. Paul uses the word God here to indicate what? Why is he using this word? He's using it to indicate that worship is directed To this God. And we go, well, I don't know that many Satan worshipers. I didn't see many last night on the streets. In fact, there weren't hardly any. Do you get what I'm trying to say? You don't have to be directly a Satan worshiper in some cult to be a worshiper of this God of the world. In other words, it can be indirectly worshiping him. Why? Because you've bought all the messages. You've bought the mindset. You think like that. Your ideals are materially based. Your opinions and goals revolve around, I want the power or my group to have the power to do what we think is best. Your hopes may be centered around the American dream. As wonderful as that is, We've got to be real about that. If God wants us to flourish that way, we've got to see it as a, as a gift of His mercy and grace, not our whole purpose in life. It's just not. So that's why He uses this word. It's, it's kind of a sticking a knife in just enough to get our attention maybe more than enough to get our attention, that we really have idols in our heart that aren't anywhere connected to God's purpose for us. And we must root those things out as we become aware of them. And notice that he says, blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And that suggests a lack of response to stimulus from the light or from the truth, blinded. When a Christian looks at the Grand Canyon, or a giant redwood tree, or anything that shouts to us of a wonderfully detailed design, a lot of those are closer to home here. Maybe in your backyard, maybe frozen now, but they were beautiful a week ago. What do we see? We should see that in that mark, it's a mark of a powerful and a beneficent creator God, the same God who provided Christ as our Savior, who we have come to know. And, folks, that's a completely different way to look at the world. I've told you probably this before, but when I was a kid and we got to go to the Grand Canyon, there was so many people at the overlook where you go in, even back then. And we were standing next to some people who talked funny. And later I figured out they were New Yorkers. They just had a New York accent. And my family was looking at this, and I remember hearing a little discussion and thinking, wow, God created this? And those New Yorkers said, this would be a great place for... A landfill that we could ship our stuff to and I just went what in other words no view at all of wow this is God's universe and he made beautiful creative detailed things beyond what we can even figure out but it's stuck you can tell it's stuck and that's great in these days I'm living in that's what we should see when we look around we should see it in people and see the good that's still there and the care that may come out when least expected or the guy that runs into a fire to pull somebody out or the guy that helps somebody get out of a dangerous situation or that warns or that comes and knocks on your door and says, we saw somebody trying to get in your backyard there are millions of ways every day That we can be thankful instead of turning bitter and when we do that we recognize that it's God who made us in his image and he has designed this world for us to work in and produce in and enjoy the beauty of it we got to go to Yosemite this summer before the smoke completely took over and I've seen it before what I wanted to see was two little redheaded guys when they saw those trees. And it was like, whoa. Along with the valley and along with all the stuff in there that's just glorious. Okay, those are gifts from our Lord. And we need to make sure as we walk around that we point those things out to one another. And if you've got kids... Man, you get to do that on a daily basis because all those places are not somewhere else. There are places here, there's events here, there's everything here to point out God's handiwork. How sad it is. We can interpret what we see. We are not held to just categorizing it and registering it. Have you ever wondered how astronomers or botanists can do that? Everything they see is it's, it's immaculate how much detail they record but they never see the Creator in it. They're blinded. And that's sad when the mind given to us by God for understanding what we see hearing, touching, how that should through sin itself be blind, deaf, and insensitive. It's all too evident that many who see the physical world have a measure of understanding of it, but they're quite blind to spiritual realities. It's this kind of blindness that Satan so effectively secured and work so hard to cultivate. And the marks of it are to be seen everywhere in our society. Do we realize that God joins faith and insight together on one hand, and on the other hand, he joins unbelief and blindness? They go together. Some of the smartest people I have ever known in my life are completely spiritually blind. That's not the factor. And this means the plans and schemes of Satan to spread hate for and blindness to God and his grace and work have a very fertile field of unbelief to grow in. And we are seeing that more and more in our day. But it's not like we haven't seen it. We may may not want to look in history to see it, but we should because it's a lesson for us. One author remarked that in spiritual things, it's not true that seeing is believing. Rather, it's more accurate to say that believing is seeing. Walking by faith, not by sight. Hopefully that'll stick little bit after this passage in verse 4 we read in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God the primary reason for blinding the minds of unbelievers is to keep them from seeing the light and this is look at this grammatically the light of the gospel, of the glory, of Christ, who is the image of God. So how does he keep them from seeing? Well, down to the ages, there's been counterfeit everything. Miracles, signs, wonders. He schemes to deceive the perishing. And we read that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for prey to devour, 1 Peter 5. And we see here today in this passage that he has the power to blind the minds of unbelievers. So the question is, do we see the contrast? Satan strikes unbelievers with blindness so that their minds can't see the light of the gospel. In other words, a veil covers their minds. Now maybe we can understand why Paul started off giving this story of Moses. Like the Israelites refused to see Moses' face radiating God's glory. They saw it, and they made him put a veil on, because they didn't want to see it. That is the perfect picture of how most of our world responds to Christians in the gospel. In other words, a veil covers their minds. The Israelites refused to see Moses' face radiating God's glory in the Old Testament, and the Jews in Paul's day were unable to understand the Scripture's message, which Paul says back in chapter 3, verse 15, and reiterates over and over. Believers experience the illuminating gospel which drives away the darkness of the world. Um do you hear any encouragement in that? You don't have to be the sum of all the negativity. I thought this was very gracious of God to bring us this passage this week. Because we're sitting here going we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to be like. We don't know anything. We're asked questions We don't know yet. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. And we get really impatient with that, all of us, especially the people who have to answer back. We don't know yet. What do we know? We know a lot. We know who's still on his throne. We know know who has us in his hand. We know that he has a purpose for all of this, that he didn't have to let any of this happen anywhere. And let's be honest, down through history, this is nothing compared to what people have had to go through. One family in the Old Testament had to go to Egypt. Why? They were starving to death. The famine covered most of Israel and that whole part of the Mediterranean world. In the Middle Ages, whole villages and towns were wiped out. Everybody died. And they didn't know why at all. The plague was then really a plague. There was wars constantly. The powerful rubbing their thumbs down on the people that didn't have anything. And in the last century, nothing happened. Oh, no. How many of our parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents went through two world wars? Two! And then they get back and there's Korea, and then later there's Vietnam and everywhere else in the Middle East. We have never had to face an enemy invading our land. Ever. Our cities bombed to smithereens. One of the first things I checked when I moved here was where would be the missile strikes, because we used to think about that in Houston. Houston was NASA, the oil capital of the whole Western world. And we found out through spies and other means that were published, that Houston would be one of the first places for a missile to strike. And I was a kid when they almost did, from Cuba. It was real. We did get down under our chairs at school, in the halls, ridiculous, but it made everybody feel a little better. And then I find out there's a plant here that disarms nuclear weapons. I laughed because obviously that's, we haven't thought about that threat probably in decades and decades and decades, but we have never had to face that, ever. Can you think of some more? It's easy too. It's called history. We have a lot to be thankful for in the midst of what's bugging us right now. We could be meeting in the catacombs. What a great atmosphere. Dead bodies lining the halls. We could feel joy running across the fields and try to find somebody's dilapidated barn so we could meet our fellow Christians and worship the Lord. And then... Instead of singing, we mouth the words barely in a whisper, with still the joy and the tears coming down our faces. This is the history of people that have, that have claimed Christ as their Lord. And we need, we need to be real about this. Your parents need to teach your kids this history so that they'll appreciate being able to be in this room right now. Instead of. Just do some of the instead ofs. Not to scare them to death, but just instead of. How can we understand the phrase, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ? Well, here's the way you read it, just like it is, but let me emphasize some of the words. The grammar here makes it understood this way. The light that the gospel shines comes from the glory that belongs to Christ. The light that the gospel shines comes from the glory that belongs to Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you belong to him, he's conforming you to his image so that you can reflect that glory. Do you see what? how wonderful this is? What a privilege. No matter how you feel, no matter whether you can leave your home, no matter whether you don't have this or you can't do this anymore you can reflect the glory of christ and god will bring someone or let you hear someone or someone will do something where that will get told to somebody else praise him the last phrase in verse four is simply a statement of fact christ who is the image of god simple although it's not in this world, human beings who were made in the image and likeness of God have so marred God's image in them that it seems almost unrecognizable at sometimes. And we know that. <clears throat> but in Christ, that revelation of God has come into visibility. Jesus said, what? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Father. In Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The gospel's light shines out very, very brightly indeed, which is an objective fact, which is true whether or not people can actually see it. We don't do it. We don't reflect God's glory based on the fact that that person will see it. We don't know whether they will see it, but we reflect it anyway. And like a radio transmission that may be in perfect working order, and someone's faulty receiver could mean they don't hear anything. I almost didn't use this illustration. I asked, does anybody have a radio anymore like that? Anyway, so the realm of spiritual sight In that realm, faulty human reception is no denial of the reality of the divine light in Christ. Paul finishes this paragraph with the amazing truth that the glorious light of Christ's gospel message can actually come from his own human servants. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Paul has written some words of vindication about his ministry in this letter. But when he preaches the gospel, he does not talk about himself. He preaches Jesus Christ as Lord. The pulpit is no place for self-display or entertaining theatrics. It's only for displaying the glories of christ and the wonders of his gospel paul's language here and elsewhere emphasize that calling on jesus as what lord and confessing him as what lord are central to the gospel sometimes i cannot believe that this debate ever happened in a church that claims to believe the bible and it It went across Christendom like crazy, and everybody had to get involved in it. Maybe to make it clearer, or to make it clear so that people could make a choice. Jesus is Lord, you cannot divide him up. To profess and follow him, and yet not to accept his divine claim, puts us in a very questionable territory. A direct result of proclaiming Christ as Lord is to recognize that you serve him. If Paul and other leaders of Christ's church see and understand that Jesus is Lord, they will also see their calling as servants of those Christ calls them to minister to. That's how this works. The reason why so many groups of Christians are so horrible to be around is that the people don't claim jesus is lord first of all really in their own personal lives because if they did they wouldn't just skip over the verses that say you are to love one another you are to serve one another you are to be hospitable to one another etc 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 you can't do it if jesus is your lord Paul's intro to several of his letters includes something like Paul's like 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 this. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ. He doesn't do that as all all of his letters. The Corinthians, he says it here, but he didn't start off that way. And sometimes he says, a servant of Christ who's an apostle. He puts them all together. This was an essential part of Paul's identity, of being a servant of the Lord and it should be ours also. The word servant here does not have the connotation of a freewheeling, part-time commitment to some job occupation. Now, a lot of you know this. I'm not going to spend time here doing this, but though it's usually translated as servant, it actually used to be, a long time ago, the word for slave or bondservant. And with America's history and angst about that word, it's almost impossible to even consider a discussion about its biblical usage. The bondservant translation includes the idea of someone selling themselves into slavery or service. And it's considered such an archaic idea that none of us really understand that. We have, don't have any experience of that. Gladly. But we need to be willing to look at what this word means. It should cause all of us to consider just how much our independent spirits affect our relationships in the church. So its various meanings are slave or metaphorically one who gives himself up, and up to another's will, In other words, those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among people. And it's also got the idea of devoted to one another to the disregard of your own interest. And that's voiced several places in the New Testament. Don't miss Paul's point here in our text because you're hung up on this word. What is Paul communicating to the Corinthians? That Christ has freed him up to serve him wholeheartedly as an apostle. So he, Paul, is privileged and equipped to serve the gospel and all its trimmings to the people in this church. Serving a meal to somebody... Is an act of love and service that you appreciate. This is kind of the picture. The meal that needs to be taken, received, taken, eaten, chewed on, swallowed, is the gospel itself. And lastly, in verse 6, For for God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So first notice that it is God's initiative that is necessary to enable us to embrace the gospel. God always initiates. We always respond. And then to blow our minds at the grandeur of this whole thing, Paul quotes God's own word in creation, which is how this service was started today, by mentioning that. He uses the word of creation here. Let there be light to explain what he's saying in this last verse. His work and initiative of shining, Paul explains. You put those ideas together and you walk out of here and you're smiling. Not just because it's beautiful again outside. Because he's got you, no matter what the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts as he makes the new Christian a what? Paul, in Corinthians, says a new creation. If that doesn't humble us, I personally do not know what will. (laughs) Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this demonstration of your grace and mercy that Paul explains in his own life, his own personal life, called as your apostle, but a servant of others who depends upon you and sees everything that you provide for him and everything you take him through as a gift of your grace so that he can reflect your image better and better. And only you know how we will do that lord pray that we pray that you would turn our minds to embrace this truth because there's peace in this truth there's assurance in this truth there's purpose in this truth oh lord and lord we need it we don't voice it as much as some but we do feel trepidation in great concern, and we should it with sadness at what we see happening in our own culture and how many people's lives are being destroyed by their blindness. So, God, we pray that you'd use us in this little church to have an effect on those you want us to, but to be willing to reflect your light no matter who we think is around us. And we pray that you do this powerfully and that you'd humble us more and more in this process. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.